You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode number nine of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Gay Robinson, who is a public engagement facilitator and a trainer for the International Association of Public Participation, or IAP2. I've been looking forward to this discussion with Gay for quite some time because I had a chance to take some training from Gay a couple years ago now, and I really wanted to dig into some of the experiences behind the stories that I was hearing during the training, and I wanted to get her sense of how collaboration shows up in her world. Gay brings a wealth of experience and knowledge, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Gay. It's so great to talk to you today. Good morning, Scott. So can we start off by having you introduce yourself? Can you maybe tell me a little bit about who you are and and what you do? Sure. Well, my name is Gay Robinson, and I reside in Calgary. I am a certified public participation professional. That's a CP3 designation from IAP2 Canada. I've worked in the fields of communications, stakeholder relations, and engagement for over 40 years now. I started doing engagement a little bit early in my career, but once I started working in the oil and gas industry in the late 90s, that really ignited my passion for this field. And it's really been the focus of my practice ever since. I have a small consultancy and a wide range of clients, including school boards and energy companies, transmission companies, and a bit of municipal government. So uh, being a small company, I often work with others. So collaboration is not just what I do for work. It's actually how I work. So I you know, love being able to make uh, strategic alliances with other consultants and collaborate on collaboration. Does your work keep you in Alberta or do you, do you get to spread out across, I don't know, maybe across Canada or elsewhere? Do you, how broad is your practice? In the last few years, I've been working primarily in Alberta, probably for the last decade. Earlier on in my career, I worked both on across Canada and in the United States when I was employed by an oil and gas company. But more recently, uh, Northeast BC, Alberta, that's kind of the, the main part for my consulting. Now, my training business takes me a little bit farther but uh, uh, that's, you know, that's another side of, of my work. What is it about engagement or public participation that kind of drew you in and I guess kept you in for a long time? What was the spark? Well, one of the things that I really found is that the concept of letting people have a say in decisions that impact their lives, that really resonated with me. I really felt like I wanted to help them have a voice. Things that were happening in their community on their own property sometimes needed to be happening with them and not without them. So, you know, we don't want to have a project happen to somebody, but have it happen with somebody. So I felt that that was something I could be passionate about, giving people a voice in decisions that impacted them. 
And the flip side of that is I wanted to help organizations make better decisions by having people have a voice in their projects. The other thing, I guess, for me was on a lot of the work I was doing, especially uh, early on in my career, I was working at the grassroots. I was working with people in their communities. I was working with people at their kitchen tables. And I really felt that being able to solve the problem at the kitchen table rather than it getting to a boardroom table or, you know, heaven's sakes, all the way to a hearing room table or a courtroom table was, you know, I wanted the kitchen table to be the place where we're having these conversations. And I guess the sort of the last thing that really uh, resonated for me was that I early on learned that there was a difference between prescribed engagement and principled engagement. And that was as a result of some of the things that were happening in the oil and gas industry in the late 90s, where because there were regulatory requirements, people were engaging to meet those requirements. In other words, it wasn't really authentic. It was more check the box. And I realized that we should be approaching engagement from a more principled approach so that what we were doing was based on best practices and not the regulatory requirements. And that's when I found IAP2 and their uh, core values and ethics. And, uh, and that really helped to continue my passion for this field. You know, you would think that people would automatically want to get involved with things that affect them. And so it sounds like what you're encountering, I guess, is that people are reluctant to do that. Can you maybe give me a sense of what keeps people out of this, out of being a participant in some of the decisions that actually affect them? Like, why do they need, why why do we need you and your services to sort of connect the dots here? Well, there's two things. There's the organizations not necessarily knowing how to do or how to approach engagement from an authentic and effective way. And then there's people who have been perhaps historically marginalized. And so they don't think that their voice belongs in the process or will be listened to in the process. But I also think we're recovering from a number of years of bad engagement. And so people will say, yeah, I, I, did something, I participated in something organized by my local municipality and then never went anywhere. They'd already made the decision, you know, all that sort of thing. So when, when people have had a bad experience with engagement, they don't show up the next time. And so there's kind of the, the multiple parts to it. Either they they feel because they've been marginalized in the past that there isn't room for their voice or they've had a bad experience and not are not going to spend their time on the next one. Well, it makes makes sense that there's a few things coming together to make this to make your services and services of people who provide kind of a facilitated approach to things make those important, I guess. You mentioned uh, that you were a trainer with IAP2. Can you and so for anybody who's listening, IAP2 is the International Association of Public Participation. So much easier to say IAP2. But can you tell me a little bit about what's, what's your experience in the training world? What's that like? I absolutely love it. It is a bright spot in my work. Uh, not that my clients aren't bright spots too. They certainly can be. But training 
is absolutely fascinating for me because, and this is a secret, don't tell anybody, but I actually learn when I'm training. I feel that it's a mutual learning opportunity. I share my experiences to help bring life to the material that I'm presenting. But in turn, the participants share their experiences and I learn from them. I learn about so many fascinating projects that people are doing, some amazing work that people are doing um, from coast to coast. And I really have had the opportunity of training from coast to coast to almost coast in that I've trained uh, from Victoria, BC to St. John's, Newfoundland, and uh, a couple of times up in uh, the Northwest Territories, up in Yellowknife. So I've got to meet a ton of practitioners, not just from Canada, though that's been the bulk of them, but I've met practitioners from Europe, from Asia, from South America, from Greenland, and had an opportunity to hear what engagement looks and feels like in their communities. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to connect with like-minded people, to learn from them, to give them a broader understanding of the field of engagement. And it also ties really well to the IAP2 code of ethics, which is support for the practice. This is an opportunity for me to mentor up-and-coming practitioners, which is, which is part of our code of ethics. So let's shift direction a little bit and get into some discussion around collaboration. I'm, I'm curious how you define collaboration. And I, I know it's also defined by IAP2 and it sits inside a spectrum. So maybe it's, it's worth sort of situating collaboration in the spectrum and also give a sense of what your thoughts are on how it is defined by you, how it shows up for you. Sure. So the IP2 spectrum is based on the idea that meaningful engagement is goal-driven. In other words, we have to have a reason for engaging people. It's part of a strategy. It's not window dressing or a box to check. It is something that we do to reach a goal of the organization. And sometimes we need to engage more and sometimes we need to engage less depending on what our goal is. And so IAP2 came up with a spectrum that shows there's different amounts or levels of engagement depending on what your goal is. So the first level on the far left side of the spectrum is inform, which we're promising we're going to keep you informed. The second level is consult, which is saying we're going to listen to your input and let you know how it was used. The clarification that has to be made here is this is an international document. So the spectrum is used around the world. And in Canada, the term consult often relates to duty to consult. So we just have to make sure we're not confusing the consult level with that. The middle level is involved, which says we're going to make sure input is understood and considered all through the process. So it's a, a case of getting people's input at various stages, going back to them to make sure we understand what their input is about, and then doing that repeatedly over the course of the engagement process. Collaborate is partnering with the public and using recommendations to the fullest extent possible. That's how it's defined by IAP2 on their spectrum. And then, of course, there's Empower, which is on the far right, 
and that is turning the decision making over to the public. So as you move from left to right, the public has increasing impact on the decision. So as I said, collaboration is partnering. And I look at that as being shared problems and shared solutions. This is where we're having deep conversations and solving things together. And we're taking the time to have a dialogue. We're taking the time to deliberate. It's not a, it's not done by a quick survey. It's something that takes more time and we, we dig a little bit deeper. I have a funny story about defining collaboration that came from some work that I was doing with some rural communities. And I had spoke at a conference and had talked about collaboration. And uh, uh, during the break, uh, one of the people at the conference, an elderly gentleman, came up and said, collaboration is bad. Collaboration is a negative thing. We shouldn't be promoting collaboration. And I was really taken aback by that. And I thought, whoa. What, what am I missing here? He was remembering back to World War II when the collaborators were the people that were working with the enemy. So for him, he was thinking as, of collaboration as collusion and it being a bad thing. But I feel it's just the opposite. Sometimes we have to work with the enemy. Sometimes we have to, you know, and I, I you know, use the term anim, enemy tongue in cheek because the people we're working with are just people who have a different perspective than we do. So you want to make sure that you're looking at it as an opportunity to work with people who have different perspectives. And for me, collaboration is kind of summed up by a famous quote by Margaret Mead. And I have it on a big poster in my office and it says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And that to me is the power of collaboration. I have that very same quote. I don't think it's on a poster. I think it's on a sticky note because it seems like half of what I own is on sticky notes nowadays. It's interesting you talked about the term collaborate and how it, in your story how it was sort of this negative connotation and I've spoken with other people about this idea about how the terminology kind of gets in the way a little bit the the concept is somehow lost in the word collaboration so we use the word and we don't often understand what it means or we don't we're not using it to mean what it should mean at least in my mind do you run into that a lot that people don't understand what collaboration is because they're confused by the word, really? You know, often what I do is I outline what my goal is as opposed to putting the labels on it. I mean, in my work, I use the labels all the time. If I'm writing an engagement plan, I use the labels, but I wouldn't necessarily use the labels in conversation with people. So I, I tend to, to say things like client X wants to partner with the community, wants to get ideas from the community about how they see the problem and what they think the solution might be. 
So I, I talk in terms of what is it that we're trying to achieve and what is it that we're going to do? And partnering is quite often uh, the term that I will use rather than collaborate. You know, we're, we're going to share each other's visions and, and, and come up with shared solutions. I like that approach because it takes the, you say, it gets the baggage of the word out of the way a little bit. Do you have a story of collaboration gone right? And, and what happened in that story? Well, I actually have two stories. One where collaboration was planned. That's what we set out to do. We're going to do a collaborative process. And the other one where it happened organically. And I think that one was really special too. So the first one was an advisory group for the development development of a new natural gas find. And because of some things that had happened in the past, the client really was committed to doing whatever they needed to do to work appropriately with the community. They were really committed. They said, we're going to use what this committee comes up with. You know, the advisory group, we want recommendations from them and we're going to use them to the fullest extent we can. And we're committed to partnering with the community on on this discussion. We had a great group of stakeholders that showed up. We worked very hard to get the right people in the room. And that isn't the people that necessarily agree with you, but that have the really diverse group of diverse perspectives. So they're coming with uh, different ideas and different ways of life and backgrounds. And, you know, we had a really good group of people in the room. And then the community started asking, well, hold it. If this is such a great new natural gas find, are there other companies that are going to want to do work in this area? Could it be a case where we're going to have this advisory committee with company X and have to have a different advisory committee or process with company Y? And they put out the idea of having everybody at the table together. So in other words, they didn't want to be engaged with separately by each of the companies working in the area. And this fit perfectly with the IAP2 core value of letting the participants help design the process. The sponsor decided that they were willing uh, to do that. The energy regulator was really thrilled at the idea of having multiple companies at the table. And so we invited in the other companies. Now, those that don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the oil and gas industry may not get that we are inviting competing organizations who each want to have the best profit from development of this area. And we're asking them to sit down at the table together. And so that was a big leap of faith on the part of the other organizations. Made my job as a facilitator about 10 times more difficult, but I was okay with that. I was up for that because that is what the community wanted. And so right from the design of what we were doing, we were collaborating with the community on what the advisory committee would look like, how the advisory committee would function, and then very, very specific areas within the development of this uh, gas field. 
So it resulted in the first area development plan of its kind in Alberta. And I don't mean that we actually had a written plan, but it was a case where all the companies were sitting down together and that just wasn't happening prior to that point. And the group came up with ideas that benefited the community and the companies. And it was like sometimes watching that group work just seeing the ideas bounce back and forth and somebody say something and somebody build on it. And the excitement and energy in the room was was just amazing. And so that was set up for collaboration right from the beginning. And, and it was a, a fabulous process. The second story I have is actually very different. In the regulatory field, it was usual for the internal team to come up with what they were going to do and then send it out to the stakeholders for input. And so you would sometimes write great lengthy documents and then you would send them out and you get all this input back and then you'd have to rewrite it. And sometimes uh, getting approval on, on these documents, which were called directives, sometimes could take multiple years. And when I started working with this one particular project, that's exactly what the project team wanted to do. They wanted to basically be at the consult level on the IAP2 spectrum and come up with what they wanted to do, send it out for input, and then review and deal with the input that they received. I really felt that the community the stakeholders on this project, which were primarily industry, oil and gas industry and, and some other uh, government departments, I really felt that they wanted to have a bit bigger fingerprint on the outcome and that there would be some real challenges and roadblocks if uh, we didn't start at a level a little bit higher than consult. And so I talked to the client and I said, look, you know, I think there's benefit in going out to the industry before you've written anything. Let's, let's just hear what they have to say to start with. And so we put together, a, I won't even call it an advisory group because it was a big group, but we put together this big group representing all aspects of the industry got their input. And the client all of a sudden started to see that, hey, the industry has some great ideas. Well, let's see if we can build on those. Let's see if we can, you know, follow up on some of them. And at the end of the day, some of the things that were written for this particular program were written by the stakeholders. And we had moved from a begrudging involved level right to a full collaborative process without ever having intended to go there. It just happened. And the client kept recognizing the value and the benefit of working, partnering with the industry. And we actually got that directive passed approved by the regulating by the board um, in one year, which was not something that happened very often. So we had a very effective and efficient process 
because we move things to the collaborate level. So two very different examples, but both of them uh, were ones where I, I really felt great work had happened, the very successful processes because we were at the collaborate level. You know, it sort of strikes me that there's a perhaps a common element between the two besides obviously the collaboration portion and that is the experimental the let's try something approach which in the first story was around let's just try bringing in the other companies and see what might happen of course you might have had a different story if companies had not been willing to do that and the same with the second one is is well let's try the the big group meeting and not really knowing where it's going to go but let's let's just give it a try it's almost an experimental mindset it is. It's experimental, but there's a really important element that happened in both those cases is necessary for collaboration. And that is a giving up of control. The project sponsor has to be willing to give up a little bit of the control, maybe a lot of the control, maybe some of the power. But there has to be a letting go in order for collaboration, for the, for the space to be created for collaboration. So you can't hold the reins tightly and expect the collaboration to happen. It's interesting because I've thought about that notion of giving up control or giving up power. And it's actually, at least this is how I'm thinking of it. I'm curious what you think is that in reality, you know, the, the folks that have the authority or have the power never really give it up. They give it out and then it's given right back to them by the stakeholders. So in this case, if the results had not gone well, the authority still sits or the power still sits with, you know, the, in this case, the regulatory body and they can still decide, well, that didn't work and, and move on. So they're in a way there, it's just a perception of what they're giving up or not giving up. What are your thoughts sort of along those lines? Well, actually, so, so maybe a better way of putting it is sharing. Health Canada has come up with a fabulous graphic and uh, we're just audio, so I can't show it to you, but uh, <laughs> they have this graphic that they use to explain the shift in control and sharing of control and increase of influence as you move from the inform level on the spectrum to the collaborate and empower level on the spectrum that just shows with little dots getting bigger and bigger as you move along, how much more influence, how much more control and power the stakeholders receive as you move to the right on the spectrum. But the sponsor never goes away. The sponsor is still there. And the sponsor still ultimately, unless you're at the empowered level, the sponsor still makes the decision. And so it's it's a sharing. And how much you share, how much you, you know, let go of uh, depends on your organization and, and what they want to achieve and, and what level they want to be at on the spectrum. But I look at it as not giving it up totally, but sharing. We're in this together. 
Let's work on this together. So that's obviously one key aspect or key lesson, I guess, we can take is that there's this notion of sharing responsibility. And I'm wondering what other lessons we might draw from your stories. Well, it takes a lot of commitment on the part of the sponsor to be willing to uh, do a collaborative process. Collaborative processes are not necessarily speedy processes. They, they quite often take much longer than perhaps a, a process at the you know, consult level uh, where you're just sending something out and getting feedback. But that's not to say that the overall project timeline increases. It's just that we're going slow at the beginning in order to go fast later on. So as I mentioned in the one situation, we got the directive approved in a year. So that actually was very, very fast, but nothing was written until months in, which seemed really slow to the to the client. So it's allowing that time and that space. Groups, so if you're going to do an advisory group, as an example, groups go through four phases and you need to, to allow time for the groups to go through the phases. The phases are forming, storming, norming, and performing. So the group has to form, get to know each other. Then they need to be allowed to storm, to do all kinds of divergent thinking so that you've got all the stuff on the table. And then you start to norm. You start to have convergent thinking where you bring people, you know, you find the common grounds and and you narrow things down to, you know, what you agree on. And then the group really, really starts to work. It would seem to me that there was almost a recipe that you could follow for planning this kind of work. But you're talking about things like a lot lot of different ingredients can go into this recipe to create some collaborative magic, I guess. Is it that simple? Or what I'm wondering is, how do we get more people sort of to the magic? And I'm I'm using air quotes. How do we get more people to that intuitive sort of gut understanding of what collaboration is and how it can work for them. How do we do that more often? The magic happens because of a lot of hard work that can be outlined in kind of four aspects. First is that there has to be a clear purpose. There has to be a goal and there has to be commitment from the organization, not just to support the process, but to actually use the outcome of the process to the greatest extent possible. The second part is the people. You've got to have the right people in the room. If you have some groups missing or if you have an unbalanced power within your group, you've got, you know, six levels of government and, you know, two community people you know, we have to look at how we've put that group together. A number of years ago, I, I was at a an IAP2 event and the speaker was uh, at the time well-known environmentalist in uh, from here in Alberta. And she was talking about, you know, who do you include? Who do you invite in? And she was quite a character, this woman. And her response was, 
You'd rather have them on the inside pissing out than on the outside pissing in. (laughs) Years later, I had her try to leave a group that I was facilitating. And I worked darn hard to keep her on the inside because I remembered her comment. And I really felt that she was right, that you needed to have those that have different perspectives, those that might be a little difficult, those that are your opposition or your competition, you need to have them on the inside. And that's that's where the magic comes from is, is the right people in the room. You need to have a process that allows the space for magic. So when we talked about being willing to innovate, as you said, or letting go of some of the control or or trusting in the process, that's got to be there. The process has to be the right process in, in order for that magic to come out of it. And part of that, of course, is, is sharing the power, making sure that you don't have huge power imbalances. On the, uh, the one example I gave of uh, having multiple companies um, invited in to be part of process, I had to be very careful that the companies weren't sending two or three representatives such that we had more industry people in the room than we had community people. And so, you know, that balance of power can really stamp out the magic. So you need to to share the power, have the right balance of power so that you can actually inspire the magic. And I guess sort of the last thing is that we can get that magic more often if we help our organization believe that you've got to believe. And the organization has to believe that there is benefit in collaboration. Well, as we start to sort of wind down our discussion for today, I was, I was curious across all the things that we've talked about or maybe some things we haven't yet touched. Are there some takeaways, some lessons that people can take from our conversation and maybe implement right away? Is there something you'd want to point them to? Well, I guess I, I can't stress more the need for planning that that they don't collaborative processes don't just happen. Even though my one example, I said it happened organically, it did, but that was because of a whole lot of planning and work behind the scenes to nurture it. And so we have to put the time and the resources into planning that process. So look at what is the commitment of the organization as far as resourcing a collaborative process. So, you know, talk about whether you've got the resources you need to resource it. And again, as I said before, we really have to help our organizations see the benefits. So, Talk to other people who have had successful collaborative processes. Ask them why they felt it worked. Get examples within your organization or within your industry of successful collaborative processes so that you can start to build the business case within your organization for using a collaborative process. 
And then I guess the last thing is we actually have to believe that there's space for collaboration within our decision making, that there is opportunity to co-create, to um, partner with. And I think so many people who, especially who've been doing engagement for a long period of time, are so used to, okay, well, we're going to, you know, send out a survey or we're going to do one little workshop or, you know, something that's at the consultant involved level and don't really look for those opportunities for collaboration. The uh, Canadian Task Force on Certification recently was having this very discussion about, you know, how often do people get to work on collaborative processes? And it's not that it's not that frequent, uh, you know, to have more than one or two collaborative processes as part of your career history can be a bit unusual in some industries. And so really looking for those opportunities where, yeah, maybe collaboration is the right thing. And I, I'm not saying collaboration for collaboration's sake. I'm saying collaboration because it is important to achieve your goal. So I guess that's, that's the thing. So, you know, you need to look for those opportunities. Is there anything that you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about today? before maybe we do a couple of short answer type questions? Well, I could talk on and on and on and on about this subject. So I think I'm just right <laughs> there. Um, I, I think collaboration is a fabulous thing to be able to do when, when you have the right circumstances. I, I am obviously completely in agreement. And, and really, that's kind of the point of these kinds of discussions. This, this podcast really is to shine a light on some of the success stories. So maybe people can take take something from them, I think. So I'm curious if you have a book or a resource that you either recommend or you give to people quite often, or maybe it's a book you're reading right now. There's a lot of books that have been written about engagement and collaboration. You're one of your uh, previous guests on this podcast, uh, Vivian Twyford, has a couple of great books. But I've just done a bit of a switch of gears lately, and I've been on a bit of a personal journey to find my place in reconciliation. And so, like collaboration, relationships are so important when we're working with Indigenous communities. So that's something that I've been focusing on a little bit uh, over the last little while. And so I'm about to start reading a book that I've been told is fabulous and uh, really informative and, and a good resource. And it's called 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. And it's by a First Nations person by the name of Bob Joseph. And so that's uh, my current read. I have that on my reading list as well. I've, I've actually skimmed it. And I think there are a ton of lessons in there that many people should should dig into and understand because reconciliation is, of course, a, a responsibility of everybody, in my mind, at least. Absolutely. Is there a leader or uh, maybe another figure that you particularly admire because of their collaborative mentality? Well, not a person, but an organization. Over the last little while, 
I've had the occasion to learn about some work being done by the Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University. And it seems that, you know, every time I turn around, they're doing something innovative. They're doing something that is related to dialogue, that is related to, you know, bringing the voices into the room. And of course, dialogue is such an important part of collaboration. And so uh, I've been looking at some of their materials. I've attended a couple of presentations that they've done about the projects that they've been working on, read stuff that they've been uh, doing. And I've been really impressed by uh, the sort of things that they are undertaking as an both a educational institution, but also as a center that's promoting innovation and best practices in dialogue. Excellent. I'll have to actually check that out. I have not, that's not uh, an organization I've, I'm familiar with. So I'm looking forward to digging into that one a little bit. Thank you for joining me today for what I think was a fantastic discussion and definitely broad ranging. I appreciate your time for today. So thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. It was a great conversation with Gay today. I appreciate her digging into the history of the synergy groups here in Alberta. And I appreciate how communities had a large role to play in bringing more industries to the table and also in having industry view communities as a valuable partner in their project process. I think I took away two key lessons from our conversation. The first is that good collaboration takes a lot of planning. There's a lot of effort that goes in to make sure the right people are in the room and that there's a process that allows those people to share their views and to build relationships together. The second part is that all of the work is underpinned by a belief that collaboration is the right way to do things. That's certainly a key message that we should all take to heart. I certainly hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gay Robinson. Until next time, happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.